This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes, as well as some of the challenges they faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Tuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. Thanks for joining me for part two of my conversation with Michael Tonkin, the founder and CEO of Tonka Learning. In today's episode, we continue our deep dive into the importance of strategy. Michael will discuss the challenges organizations face when trying to implement new strategies. He'll point out some of the pitfalls to avoid in this journey. And Michael and I will explore the role of culture and how culture change is vital when it comes to successfully implementing a new strategy. Let's dive in. Let's go straight to execution. We've covered off on strategy. Now, I love to read. I don't finish a lot of books, but I'd love to consume knowledge. One of the books that I have finished is called Four Disciplines of Execution. I don't know if you've read it, 4DX. It is a massive game changer for me. Let's talk about execution. And the first question is, there's so many books out there around strategy and you shared one with us, but there isn't as many on execution. So one, why do you think that is? And two, let's talk about execution and fill us in on your execution advice. Strategy is about both the strategy and the execution. For me, I don't see them as being two distinct parts. And I think that might to some extent lie with the challenge of organizations that spend a long time developing a strategy and may not necessarily spend the right proportion of time on implementation. Typically, particularly the large organizations, don't always do a great job of communicating what that strategy looks like. Mm. So, you know, you have a senior group of people get involved in the design of a strategy, but that comms piece can sometimes be not so great. Or there's that idea of that the strategy is in a document that sits in a SharePoint folder that people can access and then there are extra resources and then there's a video from the CEO and all of a sudden we think that others need to get as excited. There's a comms issue to start with in terms of moving from the strategic piece to implementation. So I think that's one of the keys. If I think about other reasons why implementation doesn't necessarily get that focus is I'm not sure every organization either has someone to help nudge that along or necessarily know what the right process is because it's a big, expansive exercise to think about how do we roll it out. So I would say for me, when I see organizations implement it well, there are some obvious pieces. There are one's position description and KPIs aligned to the strategy. That would be one. And so some of those processes and systems that are inherent within an organization align appropriately. When there is a disconnect, it's when we hold on to some of those archaic systems and processes and yet the strategy has moved forward. So I think that's a big piece. So I'd say comms is a challenge. Aligning systems and processes would be another. And then I think the third one for me is this, is that when I speak to people all the time about the balance between strategy and operations, they don't have time. We have people that know about strategy that get caught into, as we say, business as usual or BAU. 
And so they've got strategy on one hand and it almost creates a sense of guilt that they don't have the time or the bandwidth or the capacity to be able to support that going forward. So I think that's comms alignment and the challenge of work and finding time balancing the two would be a key component as to why implementation can be challenged. I have to say, as a consultant that talks to SMEs all the time, I have a bag of questions that I like to ask. And being a podcast host helps me with that. I've actually been able to improve my craft and asking questions. And one of the questions I ask is, how much time do you spend on the business and on growing the business or strategically thinking about the business longer term than the today? It's hard to put this in stats, but very, very few would say I do enough of it. And a lot of them would say I do none of it. And I wish I had to do more. And what the funny thing is, is these are generally, some of them can be great businesses making lots of money, but they may have plateaued in growth. Some of them are struggling and they just cannot get out of the whirlwind. And it's funny that they cannot see that the issue is with them not working on the business. And that's not always the issue. But if you can get out of the day-to-day and start thinking strategically, you might solve some of the issues in your business. And I see that a lot with SMEs. And and it is a tough world being a business owner and entrepreneur. So we want to thank you, Michael, for providing your consultancy services to our businesses. So really do appreciate that. So I want to keep talking about sort of pitfalls and, Mm -hmm. and what can happen. So Are there any others that leaders just should avoid when executing strategy? What are the things they do wrong? Other than the comms and the few things that you mentioned, what are the real things you go, oh, my God, there we go again. This is going to go to the wrong direction when executing. I'll go back to answer that question. One thing that I missed before is that the strategy itself isn't necessarily always jump off the page and is compelling enough. I, as the author of the strategy, I have this gut-wrenching commitment to drive that strategy forward, but on paper, it doesn't necessarily do much in terms of hearts and minds. And so I think sometimes when a staff member at a more junior level who hasn't been part of the process looks at the strategy, there is the potential that there's that care factor of, well, what does that mean and how does that impact me? So if I go back to your question about what are some things that leaders do, well, I'll use one example, an organization we work with that we love dearly. The strategy for them, the execution on that strategy meant that each of the senior leaders benefited financially by hitting that strategy. And so when they rolled it out to the senior leaders of that organization that didn't have necessarily a financial stake in the game, the way that they communicated it to the senior managers, I knew full well that these senior managers were saying, well, what's in it for me? You're driving an agenda that's great for your hip pocket, but where do I win? And whilst we know that it's not all about financial gain at an individual level, I think the missed opportunity was that exec who win financially didn't think enough about that when they were communicating it across. So if I were them, it would have almost been better to say, look, I know that you don't have a financial stake in this particular initiative. I almost call it out in the room rather than pretend that it doesn't exist because it was a clear elephant in the room for them. Calling that out would have been better than ignoring it. And so I sometimes see, not necessarily self-interest, that would be harsh, but that that level of I get something from it that others don't get. And I think that sometimes hits financial services, professional services, where there is a clear revenue in implication to some of the initiatives. And generally, 
strategic plans aren't created to make less money and have a less impact. So it is hard. And I think that's a good way of putting it together. And it's what's in it for me and what's in it for the organization. There's got to be an element you can roll out because it would benefit everyone. And I say to my clients, no one wants to work for a company that doesn't have a vision, a purpose, growing, making money because they go along for the journey. It looks better on their resume and it's fun yeah. uh, if you have that. This organization I'm thinking about, their what's in it for me message was you'll be less busy, you'll be able to have better work-life balance. But the reality was no one believed that. Well, let's talk about culture because we're sort of getting into that what does culture and how does that play in developing and implementing strategies. So how important is it? Do you need to fix the culture first before you roll out strategy if you think you've got bad culture or does strategy come first? You're asking an all question and I don't know if it's that simple. Mm. I think ideally, yes, you want culture right first. I think for some organization that's a three to five year piece and you don't have the time to wait for that. You know, you and I have read books and spoken to people and you could argue that a new senior leader or a new CEO can change culture overnight and potentially, you know, we might say that that can change from structure, but by and large, it's a longer process. Let me give you a, a very narrow example. An organization call us up and this happens regularly and they'll say, Michael, we want our leaders and our staff to have more courageous conversations. And we go, that's fantastic. And so if we go straight into capability building or help them plan their conversations, having the moment conversations, all those wonderful things. But if they're doing it in a culture that is one that is not feedback rich and that where people are guarded, then building capability, I know that's not strategy, but then building capability within that culture will only go so far. So we could legitimately work with an organization on building capability on courageous conversations for three years but if that culture doesn't have openness, excuse the expression, but we're mm. stuffed and they're stuffed in terms of getting any major difference in outcome. So I think culture is key without doubt. And I guess alignment's probably the next thing, being aligned. So it's part of setting that up. When you set the executing piece, execution of a strategy, do you normally start to see people leave in organizations are like, oh, all of a sudden they're telling us this is the strategy. I don't want to be here for that. Is that important, the alignment and shaking the tree a little bit and, and getting people that are going to be on the bus and yeah. type of things that kind of happen? Is that a good thing? So in our experience, a, a good strategy rollout holds people in a role rather than has people leave. You'll have some people that were on the fringes that might have been thinking, do I really want to be part of an organization? You're right. Maybe you'll lose some of those, but they were probably going to leave anyway. So sometimes what you can have is there's no strategy, no vision, and you just have a bunch of unhappy people because they don't know what they don't know. They're just sitting on plotting. And then all of a sudden we say, we're going to be a high-performing organization. We're going to have toughest conversations. That's going to be part of our culture. And we're going to be a learning organization and teaching and everyone here is going to grow. I was like, I don't want to grow and I don't want to be doing that stuff. I just wanted to just sit here and plug away and we thought we were just going to be mediocre. And then all of a sudden that's not aligned. So that's kind of what I was going from. I can think of a few examples recently where those that were happy in the role that they were, were happy doing the job that they were, were not looking for development or growth. Mm. And whilst that's okay, for some people, you know, that's a real struggle in terms of being able to move forward, no doubt. One of the successes in the work that we've done on culture and strategy is it is driven from 
the team member or the staff as much as possible. So I'll give you an example. Again, wonderful client we work with. They had engineered a sort of a conversation performance review process. You know, the typical things that you might catch up monthly or quarterly or annually. And their compliance levels were non-existent. Like no one did them. And it's quite common in some organizations that that's the case. Or you sort of have to crack the whip so hard, but you feel like it's all futile because they don't really want to be part of the process. Well, what we did with this organization is the way we turn their culture around, around having this process live and breathe, is we said it's no longer the manager's responsibility, it's the staff member. And so we built that into the KPIs for every staff member and still are today a very compliant group of people. So if it's in a KPI, there's more likely that they'll do it than not. And so now we have individual contributors going to these monthlies and quarterlies and annuals and now holding their manager's account, which is wonderful. And so now the success is being driven from that group. And I think when you have a culture where the managers are bringing staff in, kicking and screaming to these conversations, it never works. So for us, our success around strategy and culture, particularly culture piece, is that everyone has to own it for it to work. Obviously, rolling out strategy is always great when everyone's on board, but you're going to get resistance. You might even get sabotage and things like that. How do we deal with resistance and people going, no, 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 I don't want this, and then they're there and making it really difficult? The resistance can show up in many different ways. If I'm working in a small firm, it might be hard to hide. You know, it's evident for all to see. If I'm in a larger organisation, I might get away with being resistant for a lot longer and that can still create its own challenges. I also think that resistance can often come from even as something as psychological as the identity that I have that I associate with my work and if the work changes or the strategy looks to differ, does my identity then change with that? So it's not just resistance at an individual level. It can be resistance at a team level as well. Just to share a quick example, we're doing some work with leaders at the moment around leading change. And it's wonderful because it's not just about how do I lead organizational change, but it's how do I show up to my team when there's a change in the organization that I don't agree with. In more recent times, it's become really apparent. So the example is, if I don't agree with the change, do I then pass that on to my team? Because it's important for me to be authentic and transparent and vulnerable. But in doing so, am I then distancing my team from the strategy or the change in the organization? So I think One of the things we're talking to leaders about at the moment is particularly middle managers, you know, those that are in between, sometimes they haven't necessarily impacted every strategy direct, but they have to cascade it down, is that we're saying to them, that's your role. Not every change you're going to agree with. That's your role. So sometimes you actually have to just bite your lip and take your team through that strategy and still be authentic, but also look for a way, you know, how can you influence that strategy with your team? In some way, and again, a quick example, organizations are wrestling with return back to work at the moment. Mm. And so I might be a middle manager and I hear from the CEO, we're returning back three days a week in the office and I might think that's not necessary. How do I take that piece of the strategy back to my team? And that's really important. So how do I show up? We hear this term emotional intelligence. Mm. Well, I could have great emotional intelligence when I'm in control of the strategy 
or I'm in control of the change. But when the change is being imposed on me, what does what my emotional intelligence look like at that moment in time? So we see that happening quite a bit. So uh, resistance is there. The one thing I would say from a strategy perspective is try and know what those resistances, not resist doors, but the resistances will be ahead of time. And then how do you proactively navigate through that conversation? And so I think one of the challenges around resistance is when we're on the back foot and we feel like we're pedaling hard to try and win people over. I'd love that conversation to have happened earlier, I guess is my message. We've covered the pieces that I wanted to cover. We could probably talk all day on culture, all day on strategy, and probably two days on execution. But unfortunately, we've run out of time. I want to thank you so much for sharing your expertise with our listeners. It's been a little slither of um, knowledge that you've shared. And um, I hope it's brought out some thinking from our leaders. And it will definitely be one that I'm looking forward to listening myself and reflecting back. So thank you for joining me on The Bottom Line. Thank you, Savan. This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer. At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952. And we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's The Bottom Line.